Hello, please let me see your ticket subs for the double-edged double bill. This week, Superman is on a ninja domination quest for Canon Films. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Nariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Thomas Mariani, and I just came back from golfing. Uh, there was a ninja attack, but everything's cool. I just have one of those, like, throwing stars in my forehead. But I'm totally good. Only a bit of blood's coming out. Everything's great. And I am Adam Thomas, and I have a digitized version of Gene Hackman's voice. Oh, wow. Really digitized? Like, you couldn't recognize it at all. Sounds a lot worse. Yeah. No, it's terrible. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Pull up some Royal Tenenbaums quotes. <laughs> Let's shag ass. Well, who stabbed you, Grandpa? We well, did. <laughs> uh, well, welcome, everybody, to The Double-Edged Devil Bill, where every week uh, Adam and I cover a good and a bad movie we picked at the end of the previous episode. We're still uh, in November, so we're in, still doing our November theme month in which we revisit topics we've done previously. And, uh, you know, most of these have been tied to, like, some recent film that's come out or something like that. But uh, this one, you know, for the Thanksgiving holidays, which, Happy Thanksgiving to all of you out there um, who celebrate. Yeah, yeah. We decided, like, you know what? We love talking about canon films, so we're revisiting that. The great production company that was run by uh, Golan and Globus uh, that started in the late 70s and lasted throughout most of the 80s until, like, the very early 90s, they completely fell apart. Uh, it's a fascinating uh, bunch of movies that are known for schlocky, cheesy, uh, just hilarity from that era. Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, and the thing is, if anybody... Is it like a 80s schlock fan of, you know, action or really sh- cheesy horror and all that? Chances are you've seen a canon film. I, I, I mean, I can almost guarantee it. Lots of like the genres of whether it be horror, action, science fiction. Sci-fi, yeah. Right. Yeah, they were known for making sort of these uh, smaller budget initially movies that were just kind of like try to capitalize on some big trend or try to do some like kind of weird and offbeat and uh, often raked in profits until uh, the company became way too big for its own britches and started making bigger schlock, which I would argue the two movies we're covering tonight uh, fit both ends of that pretty well. (laughs) Yeah, oh yeah, for sure. Definitely. And uh, if you haven't, definitely try and seek out the uh, It's Electric Boogaloo. Uh, which is the documentary that's about canon films uh, that's amazing. That gives you the entire run-through, basically, of what it is. Though I will say, Adam, I also did just recently watch... Um, remember at the end of that movie, how they teased that like, Golan and Globus didn't do any interviews because they were making a competing documentary that came out three months prior <laughs> to that documentary coming out? Uh, yes, 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 yes. I also watched that documentary because I found out that was available. And it's called The Go-Go Boys. <laughs> and... <laughs> That documentary is also fascinating, because uh, it's mainly a puff piece. 
Oh, of course it is. Right, because shockingly they, they participate in it, so therefore it's a puff piece. But there's a lot of interesting things about like their early career because they were uh, Israeli filmmakers who came over and wanted to make Hollywood movies. But it talks a lot about their early Israeli careers and how they kind of met up with each other a lot more than the other documentary had. Uh, and then also there are two masterful little interview bits. Uh, one involving Monheim Golan when addressing the bad feature for tonight. But someone was like, so I want to talk about Superman 4 with you a bit about your failures. And he's like, why would you want to talk to me about my failures? If a failure happens, I completely cast it out from my mind. It didn't happen. (laughs) There's that. And then also, they actually got to interview Jean-Claude Van Damme and how he got the the blood sport job. And he's literally like at a palatial estate. That is like he's over by the pool, and it's like this massive like poolside area, and he's just like being very candid about like trying to get a job from Canon, and then like crying in Golan's office, and they're being like, "Fine, fine, here, give me the Bloodsport movie. You want to be movie star? Here, I'll make you a movie star." <laughs> That's how we got Bloodsport. Uh, hey, it worked though, because he yeah. definitely became a huge movie star for sure, for sure. And what do you think makes sort of a canon distinctive, especially amongst like we've covered plenty of eighty schlock elsewhere? What do you think makes sort of the canon schlock distinctive to you? Because it's earnest and it's schlock. Like that's the thing. You watch those documentaries, either the Electric Boogaloo or it sounds like the Go Go Boys. They genuinely thought they were making like Academy Award quality pictures. Like, there is no question. They thought that they were changing the game every time they were working on a big movie. I mean, they honestly thought, like, Sahara was going to be an Academy Award-winning picture. I mean, they thought Masters of the Universe was going to be, you know, save their studio and and let them, you know, make sequels and all these things. They thought Toby Hooper was going to just blow the door off for them as far as getting into the genre and stuff, which in a way he did, but he did not do what they thought he was going to do. I mean, that's why I love it so much. And when you talk about it's one of our favorite subgenres of film, period, is where someone, you know, not from the U.S. or from America comes over and, and tries to make a movie with sort of American cliche sort of beats to it and things like that. It's always off, but it makes it for a really fun time. Everything they've done has that sort of, yeah, you know, the thing is they had their fingers in every pie all the time. Yeah, but I think that the the bigger distinction to me is that Golden Globus didn't just want to be like filmmakers who did that because we talked about other filmmakers that like come over and like would make these movies in the eighties. They're like once again the foreign filmmaker trying to make an American movie, but they didn't just want to be filmmakers. Like Golan was the guy who actually made movies. Like he directed The Apple and Over the Top and some of these other ones. But uh, Globus was also like the big like the money guy, and the both of them wanted to be like old school moguls, like you would have had in older Hollywood. Like they wanted to be Louis B. Mayor, but for the 80s, basically, <laughs> where they're just like, we're greenlighting all sorts of movies, like to the degree that if you watch that Electric Boogaloo documentary, the fascinating thing is they were always making a lot of movies at any point, but by the time they were like in there, we're going broke because like we owe the bank $5 million, so the only solution clearly is to spend way more money <laughs> so we can make that money back. Like in 87, which is when one of our movies uh, that we're talking about today came out, they had 30 fucking movies that came out theatrically. That's, like, (laughs) insane for an independent studio. (laughs) And it's that weird influx where we're going to, like, make all these movies, but at the same time cut so many of the budgets, including on, say, Masters of the Universe, which was also 87, and the movie we're going to be talking about tonight, our bad pick. Um, We could have benefited from, like, cutting out a couple of those other movies and putting it toward your bigger movies. 
instead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's probably pretty accurate. Gotta love him, though, man. You gotta love him. It, 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 like I said, it's just so earnest and what they're trying to do and and just want, whether it's want to be businessmen or moguls or filmmakers or whatever it is, they, they held on to the last minute possible. And yeah, I mean, if anything, you got to give them credit. Oh, for sure. And I also would give them credit for the fact that like, you know, the bigger studios like MGM, Warner Brothers, all that, they have the distinctive like logos and stuff like that. But I feel like out of all of the various production companies that weren't one of the major ones, like an independent studio kind of thing, mm-hmm. I think Canon has the most distinctive sort of brand and like that logo is amazing and all that. I think you wouldn't have some of the other production companies that have created their own sort of brands like Neon or even uh, A24 to a certain extent owe some of that to Canon in terms of not necessarily the specific type of movie they're making, but that kind of, you know, immediate stamp of like, oh, I know what this is. This is a Canon movie versus like all the way down to like, oh, this is an A24 movie, a neon movie, whatever. Like they owe a bit of credit to, to Canon for blazing the trails in their own unique way for that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, even like early New Line and stuff like that is 100% yes, Canon. For sure. For sure. A bit more contemporaneous, I guess, at the time. Yeah. With that. yeah. But, but yes, but at the same time, yeah, I totally agree that Canon, they have that distinct look. Even like as someone who my entire lifetime was post-Canon, I still know of Canon. I still, <laughs> I had heard legends of Canon films and seen some of these movies. And like there's there's a definite sort of like stamp and interesting asset to that. Plus also like Golden Globe is in that documentary. There's so much stuff like when they went to Khan. And they're wearing those fucking Canon sweatsuits. Love it. Love it so much. (laughs) Those terrible bright blue sweats that I would wear to every family function if I could get them. (laughs) Oh, dude, if I could get a hold of those, are you kidding me? You better believe it. Thanksgiving, I'm strolling right into my mother-in-law's kitchen wearing that. I hadn't been wearing it for a week. You haven't washed it. (laughs) Oh. That's what the problem is. I see. (laughs) Well, now, we gotta talk about our two movies, Adam, that we picked at the end of our last episode. Uh, first, we'll start off with my good pick, Ninja 3, The Domination. And then your bad pick of Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. But let's go ahead and jump into our good feature, Ninja 3, The Domination. He is the most feared and powerful warrior. A ninja who breaks from ancient tradition and explodes onto America. His soul possesses the body of an innocent woman and transforms her into a lethal assassin. Who are you? Only a ninja can destroy a ninja. Her only hope is Yamada, the master ninja, who has been sent to destroy him. Where Revenge of the Ninja left off, Ninja 3 begins. An epic struggle of superhuman strength and supernatural forces. Ninja 3, The Domination. So Ninja 3, The Domination uh, came out September 14th, 1984 from uh, director Sam Furstenberg, uh, who directed a lot of canon films, including he had directed one of the two previous Ninja movies, which we should state outright that um, while this is Ninja 3, The Domination, uh, the other two Ninja movies, one, aren't called just Ninja 1 or 2. 
they're called Enter the Ninja and Revenge of the Ninja. Um, and there is no continuity of any sort. The only connection is that they were all made by Canon Films, and they all feature uh, Sho Kazuki, who was an actual uh, Ninpo practitioner, which means he actually knew martial arts. And this is part of the weird sort of like canon run of ninja movies, where basically with the first one of those, Enter the Ninja, uh, that came out in 1981, uh, they kind of started the American ninja craze that happened. And they also made plenty of other ninja movies, like Revenge of the Ninja, and also the, I believe, five American ninja movies? Yeah, buddy. Right. There are a lot of those. And uh, yeah, so they made a solid hit with Under the Ninja, and Revenge of the Ninja was still quite popular. And I'm curious, Adam, we've talked about martial arts movies, but we've never really talked about ninja movies specifically, right? I don't think we have. No. No, we have right. not. So uh, what do you? how do you feel about that sort of subgenre in general, as a bigger martial arts fan than me? Um... Uh, I fucking love it. Uh, I absolutely love ninja movies. Ninja movies as a kid, for me, were like the shit. We always would play ninjas. Any of our action figures that had masks that even looked similar to ninjas were automatically now they're ninjas. I mean, I, I just love, love, loved. I still do. I'm a huge fan of the ninja subgenre. I mean, I even showed you like you know Ninja Assassin, which I love, which is a lunacy. But you know, even Shell Kasugi shows up in that. But yeah, I was a huge fan of the American Ninja movies. I'm a fan of the Enter the Ninja movies. I have the posters for all three of them. You know, it's just absolutely love it. I think it is one of my favorite sort of offshoots of a subgenre. It's a, you know an offshoot of martial arts action movies, and you got ninja movies. Because they can go from, you know, just real sort of violent and fun to now it's like real fantastical. There's magic. There's just crazy shit happening. You know, nobody can kill a ninja. They could phase in and out of shadow, uh, spin tornado like into the ground. Why not? They can do moves with their fingers and automatically heal their bodies. Like, it's just, I fucking love it. I, I think it's so fun. Yeah, I mean, I've never been, like I've said before, I'm not the hugest martial arts person, but I always kind of like the idea of a ninja in terms of just, like, it's it's not too far removed from, like, superhero, basically, in terms of, like, because, you know, there's the connection with, like, the uh, G.I. Joe, you had um, the uh, Snake Eyes. Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow. Right, where they would integrate, like, the ninja aspect into that, and basically it's, like, it's literally, like, a masked Avenger sort of, like, person with, like, specific powers, quote-unquote, to some degree, which I guess gets into more problematic territory when you have, you know, um, in this case, Israeli producers uh, making these, like, ninja movies that are just like, okay, this feels kind of like, you know, we're kind of co-opting yeah. this kind of, like, That star white Japanese people. Culture. That star white people. Oh, That's look, especially, look, the worst of those is, I, I watched the other two ninja movies in prep for this. Uh, Enter the Ninja, where you have Franco Nero. Franco Nero? <laughs> right. <laughs> and he's horribly dubbed. Oh, the worst. <laughs> I don't know, man. The American Ninja movies with Michael Dudikoff. Pretty bad, dude. Pretty bad. I mean, yeah, and also a worse name than Franco Nero. Great name. Um, and also, obviously, Django of the Italian yeah. Westerns. Uh, but yeah, very badly dubbed. And I just love Shokazuki being so upset about, like, why is he accepted more than me? And I'm like, you know what, Show? I completely agree with you. This guy isn't very good at being a ninja. Yeah, that's horseshit, bro. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's your shit. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but I, um, so End of the Ninja, I'm kind of so-so on. Revenge of the Ninja is really fun. Because uh, it yeah, has show as a, in the main lead. And also his son, Kane, who's adorable in that movie. And also kicks mm-hmm. a lot of ass, despite being like seven or whatever. Um, there's so many good things. Particularly, I love that fucking, like, 
gang that Shokazuki and his buddies fight on the playground that's like uh, the guy with the headphones and the cowboy. <laughs> so yeah, good. so good. <laughs> so, so fucking great. Uh, but yeah, that led to eventually Ninja 3 The Domination, which as I said, has no connection to those other two movies. We start off with this ninja's going off into a cave in the middle of uh, sunny California where he's looking around like, oh, hmm, let me get my you know throwing stars and my swords and everything all together. And then after the opening credits end, we cut to a golf course and we proceed to have the ninja murder everybody on this golf course. And then the police come in. Basically, this ninja racks up like five stars on GTA within the first ten minutes of the fucking movie. And if you thought it's like, wow, this is so bizarre, is the movie going to slow down from here? Not really. It's going to get weirder from here. But just that opening alone sets you up for like this is even yeah. weirder than the other two ninja movies by like a mile <laughs> yeah the, it, like the killing and all that might slow down after that first 10 minutes but it just gets so fucking crazy like if, you know you would think how is this going to get crazier this guy is literally just getting shot up by the police and he's just killing fucking everyone he's taking out helicopters he uses a poison dart on a gun which explodes in a guy's hands which is the best it's great i mean the accuracy the guy hangs from a helicopter goes up next to the helicopter puts a fucking throwing star in between his feet and stabs the helicopter pilot in the head with it kick throws it into the pilot yeah Right, from the complete opposite end, by the way, in which you would have actually been able to hit him from. Oh, yeah, no, I, well, ninja magic, bro. Um, right. But, I mean, I mean, that's your answer for everything in this movie. But it's like, how is how can this possibly get nuttier? Well, then he meets this really young, svelte line worker, and it just goes batshit crazy. Well, 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 yeah, because like he's been shot up horribly by the police at this point, and his last dying acts are walking over to uh, Lucinda Dickey, uh, who plays Christy Ryder, who was a big canon star at this time. Interestingly, she shot this as her first canon film of 1984, but right afterwards she went back-to-back shooting on Breakin' and Breakin' 2 Electric Boogaloo. She had yeah. a very busy 84 <laughs> with canon. Um, and uh, she, like, encounters this uh, ninja who's dying, and the two of them lock eyes, and that means that, you know, naturally, that ninja's soul is in her body. Yep. Of course. Because that's what happens. Yeah. Yes. As you right, do. we all know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, of course, as, as it should be. Uh, yeah, and then uh, she proceeds to, like, just dance and do aerobics a lot, date possibly the hairiest young man I've ever seen in my life, uh, who's really grossly weird, like, persistent. And then it just turns into, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> and you're like, okay. Okay, the, the, the weird process where Jordan Ben, who you're talking about, is Billy Secord, is this cop who meets her as she's being interviewed post- like the ninja attack and he's creepily looking over not even being the one interviewing her just being like oh look at her hey hey hey, hey, hey you want to go out for some coffee it's like no thanks I gotta work out you know coffee's bad for you and then she goes over to aerobics class where he has followed her then proceeds to follow her as she leaves and then finds uh, one of her aerobic students who's being accosted by some dudes outside and she kicks their ass while the cop guy and the rest of the crowd is watching outside just like, huh? Oh. I mean, oh, wow. feet, only from feet away, too. Right. You know, like, that's the thing. I remember, like, watching, rewatching it for this and I'm seeing, like, at least five, six other dudes, not to mention the police officer in the fucking group. 
And they're just watching. They're like, whoa, man, whoa. Why wouldn't you stop this from happening? Like, what the fuck is happening here? It's great. But the thing is, after that fight happens, he comes over to her and she's like, all right, that's it. I'm, you follow me. You're being arrested for assault. And then they cuts to them driving. And she's like, look, I don't know why you're doing this. She's like, it's fine. I was just teasing. I'm not going to arrest you. Want to go back to your place? Yeah, sure, actually. And they bang. There's no question. They bang. Right, they they bang. Of she pours like of the, with the whatever on her throat. Oh, uh, excuse I, me, it's V eight juice. Oh yeah, Sorry. I forgot. Oh god. Oh god. <laughs> She's pu- not just down her throat, but like down her neck in front of her. Like that's erotic. And then they, he's like, and they get into it, and then they wake up in bed next to each other, and that's when the possessed sword makes its first appearance. Right, and uh, those of you out there who are probably very confused don't worry this is pretty much the play-by-play it gets worse it gets crazier right that's going down here because this is basically it's a combination of obviously like the ninja craze was going on at the time but also uh the exorcist clearly with the possession element there's other like exorcist elements that happen after this point and then also flash dance because it is so clear that Lucinda Dickey is trying to be made up to look like Jennifer Beals as much as possible in this movie. And also oh, yeah. being like the lady who can like who loves to dance, but also her main job is like something incredibly masculine by comparison. <laughs> it's just like it is so flash dance. And that's what I love about this movie, really. I saw this before I saw any of the other ninja movies or whatever. And I just found this movie fucking fascinating. This is such a weird, bizarre movie that could have only been made in 1984 when it was considered a good idea to have those three sorts of movies mixed together. And it's it's magic, Adam. No, it genuinely is. Uh, it has some very unfortunate eye makeup. There are points, yeah, where you see Lucinda Dickey when she's really possessed, when the because the demon comes in and out of possessing her, basically. Sometimes yeah. most she's Lucinda Dickey, but then the sword will show up or... <laughs> Her fucking apartment arcade cabinet will shoot lasers on her face, and it'll may indicate that she's possessed by her eye makeup, which is, you know, a bit more slanted and awkward. Yeah, pretty rough. Yeah, pretty rough. Though I would still say the weirdly, the most racist element of this is the fact that you have Chinese-American James Hong dressed up in full Japanese garb. With a weird mole on his face for no reason? Yeah. I don't know what the deal is with that, yeah, but it's just that, that that is even more specifically racist in a very clear, like, what? He's an Asian guy. That's right. That's all that matters, right? Golden Globus, that's all they care about. Truly was, yeah, obviously. Yeah, that, and like I said, my, my dude's body hair is just so disgusting to me. Uh, like, it, it's, it's a lot. Like, it's a lot of out of here. You, you can tell that Jordan Bennett was really trying hard to be like, oh, I can be like Elliot Gold, right? I can pull that off, right? It's like, <laughs> yeah, because nobody. that's just like Eugene Levy. Wait a minute, buddy. Um, I, I, I would argue Elliot Gold is what he was going for. Eugene Levy is more what he ended up with, I would say. Yeah, maybe like Eugene Levy and fucking Robin Williams' weird love child <laughs> explains the body here. Um, <laughs> He's more hair than man. Yeah, exactly. I'm hair man. (laughs) But no, it's just, this movie is just perfect canon film. Like, you know, you you get them sometimes. Like, even on our last time we did canon films, you know, we did, what was it? We did Death Wish 3 and... And Invasion USA. And Invasion USA. I'd also put both of those as, like, if you want to watch canon films or tell someone to watch them, those are two that I would also recommend. But this one would probably be right near the top, where it's like, you gotta watch Ninja 3. Like, if you want to see a movie that not only, like you said, could be made only in the 1984, but also 
only by canon films. Only canon films would be like, let's mix The Exorcist, a ninja movie, and Flashdance together. Well, plus it kind of covers like three different quadrants of canon because they did all sorts of genre stuff, but they did plenty of ninja movies. They did plenty of oh, weird yeah. horror movies. And they did yep. plenty of like, you know, the break-in movies like we mentioned earlier, just like movies that are catching in on like some kind of modern trend, in this case, aerobics. So it's just like, let's mash them all together. Because that's the weirder thing. It's just canon could have made three separate movies, but they're like, oh no, they all got stuck in a pot. <laughs> we can't get them out. <laughs> and now right. we have this. Fuck it. Roll it. <laughs> I mean, 100%. It's ridiculous. It's amazing. There's plenty of violence in it. There's attractive people. There's just weird, subtle racism, which is not necessarily a thing to be attracted to. But Not films, the selling point, necessarily, I would say. That's the, maybe the one detriment, I would argue. Yeah, no, I, I would say, yeah, of course. But it's a canon film. They did that a lot. Like, a lot, just because they just didn't really care. I guess they're just like, fuck it, make it work. So it's just, it's one of those movies where it's just, it's wild, dude. It's a wild fucking movie. Like, and then she goes and starts, we didn't even mention how, you know, once she's possessed, she goes and starts killing cops. Yep, all the cops that were on the scene who murdered her. Yeah. When she kills the one in the fucking hot tub with, <laughs> with when he's with those two girls, and then she goes into the fucking room and poisons him i think and then slices the other one's chest open and then drowns the other one well what you're missing also is the fact that as he's initially like uh she lucinda dickie comes down and just like starts making out with that guy and the other two ladies are making (laughs) this elaborate commentary just like oh my god who is she oh she's so weird oh great thanks guy like they're just like so badly adr'd like narrating this whole situation what the fuck (laughs) it's it's great Oh, it's so dumb. Like, but then, like, when she breaks into the one guy's house, who's it looks like he lives in a shack with just a pool table in it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> she breaks in and kills him by kicking him in the face out of a window. It, it, it's just it's lunacy. But you know, ultimately, we we kind of gloss over a little bit. But Shokazuki is in this one too. He shows up as someone who's trying to get revenge against the titular ninja. The the one that's possessed her. Right, because the whole thing is the original ninja killed Shokazuki's father and stabbed out his eye. So he has an right. eye patch. Yeah, a pretty yeah. cool looking eye patch. It is a pretty cool looking eye patch. Right, even though it has like a coin slot looking thing in the middle. I know, I'm just like, if 100%. I put that in, could, is that what makes Shokazuki do his ninja well, magic or whatever? Yeah, well, two things. One is obviously that's there so he could see out of it. But two, Honestly, it, yeah. it also looks like the sort of the blade guard on a sword. Right. Like, it looks like that might be what they were going for, where that was, like, the part of a sword. But, but, but I will say that that's the thing that I think makes this distinctive to me from, like, say, Enter the Ninjas. Like, this and Revenge of the Ninja, while at the same time they have some of these uncomfortable stereotypes and don't appreciate, at the same time, both of them let Show Kazuki show how much of a fucking badass he is. Oh, for, for sure. Once he enters the picture and he starts gets rolling, like, you know, when he starts showing up and disappearing and then beating the shit out of random security guards and cops and mortuary workers and all. Like, it gets really fun. Like, the whole movie's fun, but it gets really fun. And then, obviously, it culminates in his epic fucking magic ninja fight. 
which is great. But in between, there's some great like fight sequences that initially there's one um, that is at a funeral where a bunch of cops try and face off against uh, possessed Lucinda Dickey and they get the shit beat out of them once again. Um, and then that leads into Shokazuki fighting off against possessed Lucinda Dickey in like an abandoned house, which is yeah. a genuinely great fight sequence. Yeah, it's great. It's like a lot of them going through like different trappings and, and at one point um, possessed Lucinda Dickey like jumps through the second story of the building up to where Shokazuki is. It's like, this is fucking dope. This is really good fight choreography and shit. Yeah, it's fucking great. And uh, throughout all this, there's all sorts of like fun details too. Like I kind of mentioned this earlier, but Lucinda Dickey's apartment that is like the weirdest apartment possible that has like the arcade cabinet and like a diving suit and like lockers and other shit like just like this the idea of like oh this is what a quirky apartment would be like once again Jennifer Beals' character from Flashdance times 10 with how ridiculous this apartment looks and at one point the arcade cabinet manages to like send some lasers at Lucinda Dickey's face and she starts like doing a weird possession thing that feels like a weird 80s music video it's just it's bizarre shit and also the sword which you mentioned that like shows up occasionally that's like it glows and just like this flies and I love I have the blu-ray and you can clearly see the string it's so magical it's just obviously there yeah it's a glowing ninja sword that floats I mean via string but still yeah it's fucking great it, it, it's just like I said it's silly it's ridiculous it's just so over the top and like how what the fuck am i watching but that's sort of what endears it the most you know it's just it's this wild wacky shit that could only exist this one movie i could never see somebody redoing something like this and it being successful right or having near the amount of charm that this has because it's just very sincere about like oh we'll appeal to like a three quadrant audience of horror fans and action fans and flash dance fans and they'll all come to see ninja three the domination which was not the case uh this kind of ended the um at least the initial ninja craze though the american ninja movies would come shortly after this and just do other interesting things uh beyond that but I, i think what what makes this work so well is that it's like you mentioned like it's just the this natural charm that could only come from like trying to like combine all these genres sincerely, but also doing it in the most backwards ways, like the finale that happens, which you kind of referenced earlier, that occurs at this temple that's like off on a hill, and Lucinda Dickey's like gets exercised of this demon. At, le- at least this isn't the first attempt though, because there was obviously the thing with James Hong, which we didn't really mention that much, but it's one of the most bizarre sequences with her as like a doll that's like floating around and shit. <laughs> That's so good. Such an amazing bad doll. Um, And then during this attempt, she actually does get the demon sucked out of her at the very end. Uh, But that causes like the original ninja and Shokazuki to fight each other. And also the monks that show up. And also there's shit and all this like weird, like 80s, like lightning effects and shit like that. It's, It's so amazing and leads up to literal like earthquakes happening. And more importantly, Lucinda Dickey and Jordan Bennett just watching the whole finale. They have nothing to do for, like, the last 15 minutes of this fucking movie. I know. They're just watching and, like, staring and smiling. Like, legitimately. They're just smiling. Right. And so Lucinda Dickey, like, comes up to, for the killing blow. And he's like, yeah, I did. And Shokazuki's looking like, motherfucker. <laughs> I did all this. And you get the killing blow? Well, you think she does. He really does, though. He stands well, that motherfucker true. in the top of the skull. Yes, right. But at least in that moment, he looks just like, motherfucker, yeah. did you just do that? 
which my favorite part, and then, you know, of the ending, and I don't mean to do play-by-play, but when he's climbing up the grappling hook to sort of get out from falling five feet, because that's clearly what it is. They're clearly ground just right there. But he climbs the grappling hook, and he finally gets up, and it's such a huge struggle. He's like, oh, God. And then he just walks down the hill. <laughs> it's like, you were already down there, man. You were just <laughs> It's fucking great. I love it so much. I mean, yeah, in terms of my favorite thing about the finale is definitely, like, when those, like, weird monks come out of nowhere. Because we just assume initially, like, oh, this temple's, like, completely empty. And then the moment that dude resurrects in his own body and Shokazuki starts fighting him, they all come out of the woodwork to start fighting. Like, where were you guys? What were you doing off to the side just, like, doing jack shit? And it's like, oh, possessed ninja resurrection. I gotta go over and fight. And they are wasted immediately. Like, the ninja guy just has to, like, touch them. And they're like, oh! I know. Oh yeah, they yeah they do nothing. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. They're just cannon fodder. Cannon fodder. Yay! So Adam, would you say maybe then that this is your favorite of the cannons, or just like in the upper echelon? For it's top tier. Yeah, I mean maybe not my favorite, but it's in the upper echelon. Absolutely. I mean this is damn near a perfect movie. I, I, it's so fun. I mean it's perfect and as ridiculous as it is, but it's so so fun. Yeah, it's definitely, like, perfectly entertaining in a way that, Mm -hmm. like, is mostly very unintentionally funny. But at the same time, it's just, like, it has this consistent energy and complete lack of, like, no, nothing's gonna, like, stop in terms of momentum. We are just going forward right from, like I mentioned, right after that opening credit sequence when that golf course massacre happens for, like, ten minutes of the opening. Like, from there, it does not really stop. Because even if it stops for, like, a breather, quote-unquote, just weird shit's going on. And then it's the most 80s-tastic movie possible with just like oh look here's this in our aerobics garb and we're just chilling out here and like i'm in, in my apartment that has all like an arcade cabinet and all this other bullshit that's around and it's and just also hilarious lines like the bit where she's talking to the doctor and it's just like well i don't know there doesn't seem to be much wrong with you except for your love of exercise and an affinity for japanese culture no harm in that like what <laughs> why are we mentioning that at the doctor's appointment <laughs> yeah i mean right exactly <laughs> exactly. Like, A, did she tell the doctor that she had a fitty for Japanese culture? Or B, is that doctor just guessing? Because either way, weird. Uh, harsh to assume that she's an otaku. Yeah, right. Right. For sure. Right. On that. But, um, yeah, and we've been talking quite a bit, and we have another movie to talk about. So, uh, final thoughts on Ninja 3, The Domination. It's fucking great, man. It's super fun. Uh, it's a good time, no matter what, no matter where you watch it, how you watch it, when you watch it, you're going to have a good time. It's pure lunacy and just outrageousness and one dumb idea after another that somehow all melds together to make it come out the other side kind of brilliant. It, it's fucking crazy. Yep, and all in a 92-minute package. Another great thing about canon, just like they're in and out. <laughs> we didn't need to waste too much time. It's all all that shit <laughs> in 92 minutes. Oh, you gotta figure, it's probably closer to 80 minutes, because the credits are fucking forever. Right, that's true, yes. They, they probably a bit more, yeah. But regardless, the fact that it's so compact, despite all that shit going on, it's a tremendous time, completely agree. One of the top-tier canon films. A great example of like what I love about canon, where it's just this like very sincere depiction of just like let's try and get in on as many trends as possible like i said previously canon would usually make like three different movies out of this movie but they're still at the point here which is like i don't know how about we combine all of them and it's kind of like the best version of hal in a hat 
where it's just like, you know, there's the comedic concept of like, oh, one hat is funny. Two hats makes it weird just to cancel out the joke. This is like, no fucking three hats. We're doing it. And you're like, you know what? You wear those three hats. Well, Ninja through the domination. You wear those hats. You're great at it. Uh, so yeah, for sure, definitely. If you have not seen any canon film, this is a great example of like the entree. It's a great a sample platter, as it were, <laughs> of what you can get from canon films in general. But now, Adam, it's time we get to our bad feature, the rather infamous feature that partially brought on the end of canon: Superman Four, The Quest for Peace. <laughs> The countdown has begun. Can we listen to launch? The world is on the brink. Defend the counterattack. And only one man can save us now. What a scoop! Effective immediately, I'm going to rid our planet of all nuclear weapons. But the greatest threat to Superman is Lex Luthor. He's created a being more powerful than the Man of Steel. Smarter than I thought. Pierce his skin. Dance on his grave. Christopher Reeve, Gene Hackman, Jackie Cooper, John Cryer, with Mariel Hemingway, and Margot Kidder. What? Superman 4, his greatest adventure, the quest for peace. So, Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, uh, came out July 24th, 1987, from director Sidney J. Fury. And, you know, there's a bit of backstory to this one as well, because obviously this is the fourth in the original Superman series of films that starred Christopher Reeve. This is the last one of those, unfortunately. I guess we should kind of start with that, Adam, uh, with your thoughts on, you know, that sort of original trilogy of Superman films starring Christopher Reeve. What do you think of those movies? I think the first one's pretty fucking great. I think the second one's a masterpiece, and I think the third one's a huge swing and a miss. I mean, I, this I'd argue the third one might be worse than Quest for Peace. On the strength of the fact that it's two hours long versus the yeah. 90 minutes alone, that yeah. makes it a worse movie. <laughs> it's worse. Uh, but, it, it, I mean, like I said, the first one's fucking great. And the second one's a masterpiece, you know, given on the strength of even the villains and Terrence Stamp, Azad, and all that. It's they're great, and of course Christopher Reeve, you know, was a, is a great Superman. He, you know, probably the first one that most people know. I mean, obviously there was George Reeves and all that stuff too back in the old serial days and all that. But uh, yeah, Chris Reeves is fantastic. I mean, you know, it's a hard sort of legacy to follow i think that's sort of been the problem with a lot of you know the modern day iterations of the character even you know with brandon routh who i thought was pretty solid i mean very chris reeve like yeah not helped by like those that movie's so hard trying to be like no we are the, the official superman three a thousand percent and then you got the henry cavill version who you know i actually do like quite a bit uh i know it's like darker and all that stuff but i think he as Superman really works. Uh, you know, the problem's not him with those. No, the problem is definitely not. No, the problem is definitely not him. Uh, I think he's fucking pretty much perfectly cast for Superman. Uh, but, you know, we'll see where it goes from there. And, you know, now that James Gunn's taken over and all that, we'll see what happens to the character. And, and, and now that Black Adam has completely reshaped the structure of the DC universe, as we all know. Right. Yeah, there's a new, what is it, new power 
whatever the fuck it is. One, whatever Dwayne Johnson yeah, saying. Whatever the <laughs> fuck he's saying. Who the hell knows? Frick Terabata and Energy Drinks. <laughs> and also my tequila. But anyway. Yeah, Terabata, yeah, hey, bro, hey, blah, 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 blah. Fuck you. <laughs> Follow me on Instagram, cheat day, big sack of pancakes. But, but yeah, I mean, I generally agree with you. I would say, yeah, I, I rewatched actually the first Superman right before I watched Superman 4, which was an interesting sort of like the two ends of that spectrum kind of thing. But I think the first Superman is like nearly a perfect movie. I would just argue like when it gets more like Irwin Allen disastery by the end of that movie and like the time travel stuff, I'm not as huge on, but like especially the opening bits, like the whole origin is so beautifully put together. It feels less like a superhero movie of modern, more like an old school epic film of that just happens to fall around a superhero that's like so tremendously done. And then I'm one of those guys where I would argue the theatrical cut of Superman 2 is a mess, given, obviously, like, there's the um, Richard Donner stuff versus the Richard Lester stuff. The Lester stuff ages like a fine milk against the fine wine of the Donner stuff, which is why I love the Richard Donner cut of Superman 2. I think that's the masterpiece. Yeah, I guess I should have I guess I should have uh, been a little more specific. I, I agree with you 100%. Right. The Donner sure. cut is, is a masterpiece. The theatrical cut... It's still got some fun bits, but yeah, it's messy as fuck. Yeah, um, and most of the great bits that are in that one are in the Donner cut anyway. (laughs) Um, But then, yeah, I would say Superman 3, I would say, is the low point of those movies because it's barely even a Superman movie. It's way more of like, let's have Richard Pryor riff for a PG rating and occasionally Superman will show up and do something. It's really... (laughs) really just like completely running on nothing so superman 4 comes out about four years after that one because that was 83 this is 87 and uh canon films ended up getting the rights because the sulkins were disappointed by how superman 3 kind of went and also supergirl had happened um and wasn't very much not a success whatsoever so in a move that would never, ever, 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 ever happen again uh the, the sulkins were like oh let's sell off these comic book rights for like superman i guess whatever to canon that'd be like if warner brothers was like let's not do another superman movie hey asylum do a superman movie you can we'll distribute it we just don't want to make it well i mean they had they at one point either had or almost had the rights to fucking spider-man canon films well yeah that was the thing is that i i love that story like there was oh. so many movies in production around this time in 87 like in 87 they released 30 fucking movies like i said earlier and they would literally do the thing where they would shop around promotional material to get distributors and like investors interested before they ever shot a frame of film so they did have a spider-man movie with michael dudikoff right well they originally had like that was at least in any of the test footage was a guy named scott leva who was a stuntman, who they were uh, going to say, like, oh, you just do the test shots, then we'll get Dudikoff. But then they were like, oh, we won't get Dudikoff. That's too much money. So we'll get you, stuntman, <laughs> to do this. And there, I love that they originally bought the rights when they didn't know what Spider-Man was. So they were originally going to give it to Toby Hooper to make into, like, a fly movie, where it was, like, Spider-Man with, like, eight arms and shit. <laughs> and it was going to be a body horror movie. <laughs> I love that shit so much. <laughs> so much. I wish that would have existed. I want that so badly. Um, but then they were going to make another one with Joe Zito, and it was going to be more traditional Spider-Man. It was going to have actually Stan Lee as uh, J. Jonah Jameson was their original idea um, to be involved. But that ended up completely falling apart when Shocker, uh, both 
Superman for the Quest for Peace and Masters of the Universe, which we've talked about previously on the show, totally bombed hard <laughs> at the box office this particular year. And, um, you know, to get to the movie at hand, Adam, uh, Superman for the Quest for Peace um, hasn't earned its sort of reputation as being a bottom-of-the-barrel superhero movie. Uh, yes. Yes, at least in my opinion, yes. Uh, it's pretty fucking bad, dude. Like, say what you will, like I said, the Richard Pryor one, you know, because of the length to it and all that, it's really bad. But this one, even being shorter, is so fucking boring to me. It is so boring. I do not care about anything that's happening. The performances are so hacky and just nobody really gives a shit. I mean, Christopher Reeve, kind of, but everybody else in it is like gene hackman doesn't give a shit margot kidder is already like full into margot kidder at the times like breakdown it's well she, that would happen in the 90s but we're not too sadly far off from that no like right is, yeah she's been she was struggling with like mental health stuff around this time yeah yeah i mean it's and it's obvious you know and you got hemingway who i can't stand you know we just talked about her on her fucking werewolf episode it's just and then uh john crier who is just horribly annoying in this movie <laughs> well you talk about bro well i just kid about the goof thing or the freak show and, oh, oh, oh. Uh, it's just it, it is just it's dumb it's dumb i mean i get it that not a terrible idea for Superman to put an end to the nuclear arms race, kind of. No, uh, which was Christopher Reeve, like, the, the main reason he was courted was because he wanted to pitch this as a story for Superman to do. Kind Not of a bad. cool idea. I, I yeah. think it's a really cool idea. But then you get Nuclear Man out of it, which is fucking ridiculous. Look, much like our previous movie where it's, like, the shit that doesn't work, which makes it great, nothing works in this one, but the things that really don't work are the only reason it's watchable. The special effects. Yes. Uh, be it the green screen or the miniatures or anything. It's so fucking bad. I mean, they repeat the same fucking shot of Christopher Reeve flying 20 times easily. Yep. It's very clear he's the same, like, 15 seconds of him, like, in the chroma key office. And it's just, like, him flying, like, look, he's through the subway. He's going in space. Look, he's chasing Nuclear Man. Look, it's the beginning of the movie where he's flying up into space to save a Russian cosmonaut. Look, it's, I mean, it's nonstop. But it's fucking great. That's the only reason this movie has any charm to it, at least in my opinion. The scene with him, with the fucking Statue of Liberty, I mean, get the fuck out of here. Right, there's a point where the Statue of Liberty, like, in the fight between him and Nuclear Man, where it's being carried off by Nuclear Man, and then it's dropped at one point. There is a shot when it's just falling, and you see the full Statue of Liberty, like, up front, where it's like, this is like Monty Python cutout animation. Oh, thousands <laughs> It just looks percent. rough. <laughs> it's some little, like, shitty tourist shop fucking statue that they're just dropping, and then all of a sudden, here comes Superman catching it by the one hand. <laughs> <laughs> in front of a fucking green screen building that warps as he flies up. Like, you can literally see it start to, like, shift and everything. Oh, I mean, any there. of the people who are on green screens, you can see, like, that weird line. Yes. It's like, you didn't finish this. A big thing with this one was, this was in the middle of canon being so bullish about, like, no, we're going to put out, all, like, 30 fucking movies and we're going to have them all in production at the same time. To the degree that throughout pre-production, it was going to be a $36 million budget. And then right before they started shooting, they cut it to 17. Yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah, big fucking <laughs> that's, problem. <laughs> that's a pretty massive issue. Uh, yeah, there's there. a great, uh, during that canon film, the Electric Boogaloo documentary, they interviewed, like, the main special effects person for Superman 4, <laughs> who was just, like, talking about one point, like, oh, everyone was saying, like, you're a failure, you fucked this up, and it's like, yeah, 
Because we only had 17 million fucking dollars for the whole movie. <laughs> it's like, yep, I get it, dude. Because, like, you can tell that all this stuff, like, they had such a grander vision. And you would think, once again, like I kind of referenced earlier in the show, like, you would put all your money towards Superman 4 and Masters of the Universe. Like, you'd cut out doing a couple other movies and put that toward the big movies that might have made you a huge profit. But Canon was like, nope, we can't do that. We'll give you 17 as opposed to, like, 2 million. Like, we're using for, like, five other movies we have in production right now. Jesus Christ. I mean, it's do- it was doomed to fail. I mean, without question. Yes. Um, and, I mean, I will say in terms of my general thoughts about Superman 4, um, I would agree that I think it is quite bad. And it's not, like, the Canon film fun bad, necessarily. I think there are moments of that, like with the special effects... And, like, I would say with a couple other weird plot developments, like, even how the nuclear arms race thing starts, where it's like they have the president on TV just saying, like, well, it looks like the, the talks didn't go through very well, and, uh, you know, we don't know what to do, so we want to be second to none, so it's like, oh, no, nuclear tensions are rising, and they cut to a classroom <laughs> where this teacher, for some reason, is just, like, having the kids watch this, this elementary school kids, and it's just like, oh, hey, all your elementary school kids, what do you think we should do? How do you think we should resolve this? And there's that one fucking kid kid in the back where everyone's like oh he wasn't listening don't call on him and he, this little kid has the voice of like a 35 year old man suddenly oh, yes. just like i know what we should do let's call superman yep <laughs> like, what? yep absolutely i uh, i'm sorry what was that speak up son i said superman said he wouldn't do it it's <laughs> <laughs> so fucking good it's so good and that kid's, like, a recurring character in, like, the first half of the movie where, like, he goes to the UN where Superman is. And Superman's just like, hey, Jimmy, I'm going to go up there with you. Just like, thanks, Superman. I really appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> Golly gee willikers. Thanks for looking out, you fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can't stand that kid's voice. So there's bits like that, and there's also, like, weird logic leap stuff that I find fascinating about this movie. Like, early on, how Nuclear Man is created is that Lex Luthor is touring a museum, and he goes over to, like, where they have a strain of Superman's hair on display, and it's holding up, a, like, a ball that literally says, like, a, it weighs, like, a thousand pounds. And he's like, oh, you know, I'm gonna finally get this hair so I can clone Superman with it. And then he breaks the glass... And then using the bolt cutters that he used to break open the glass, he cuts Superman's hair that's strong enough to hold up the fucking ball? Like, what? When, isn't Superman's hair a bit more indestructible than that? I mean, you would think. I, You would hope that a normal fucking pair of bolt cutters isn't enough to hurt Superman, because that's what they're implying. Right, because there's that, and then there's also I Love... Meryl Hemingway plays like uh, Superman's uh, or sorry Clark Kent's love interest throughout the movie, and there's a point where Nuclear Man during the final fight after he's in space comes down, kidnaps her, and brings her into the to space without any protection, <laughs> and she's just fine. She's, she's literally panting in deep space, and she's totally fine. <laughs> I know you want to see it happen, like how you know when fucking. The Grand Maw got kicked out into space in Avengers, you know, where she instantly freezes and starts cracking. That's yeah, what I like was going Brian De Palma's mission to Mars with uh, yep. Robbins. Yeah. 
I was going to say that, but I didn't know if you would get the. I don't know if you've seen it. I 100% anyways. get that reference, yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> it's fucking terrifying. Yep. It's the only part I remember about that fucking movie anyway. Um, but but yeah, like there, there's stuff like that that I find very fun. But the problem is that this one is also trying to do a lot of like that charming, witty stuff. That's from the original Donner movies, which is kind of what makes those movies for me. It's like, at the same time, they have these like big, grand, epic visions. There's like sweet, intimate moments. Like, one of my favorite scenes in like just fucking movies in general is the whole like interview that turns into the flying thing with her with uh, Lois Lane and Superman. It's a wonderful bit in that movie. So like great, romantic, cinematic, fantastical, beautiful. And they do a beat for beat version of it here, and it fucking sucks. <laughs> it sucks so much. <laughs> But then he can kiss her, and she, she loses her memory. Right. To be fair, that. that's from Superman too. Yeah, I know. Right. I I, so, I, 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 I just don't get it. I just don't. I don't get it. I mean, it's one of my I'll few never, problems with Superman two in general as well. It's just that weird kiss thing. I've never been a fan of that in general. Yeah. What's <laughs> the movies. other power? What's the other power he has in this? Where like, well, wait, the time what? travel thing that's in the end of the first movie, where yeah. he's able to like turn the world around. Right. Which would just cause utter chaos and destruction. But there's something else in this one. I forget what it is now. God damn it. Well, there's a couple because there's my my favorite. Like another one of my favorite bits is during one fight where they're going around the world, like him and Nuclear Man fighting each other, and they break part of like the Great Wall of China, and then Superman just stares at it and it like stop motion rebuilds itself. That's the one. That's <laughs> the one. Yeah, they're like, wow, what a miracle. And he's like, see you later, folks. It's so fucking stupid. There's a lot. And also his freeze breath, which like he, they had done previously. And it's like a lot more like subtle in the other movies as opposed to bad animated like cold breath comes out of him in this one. And it, like stops the magma in Italy. And they're like, mamma mia, you did it. Oh my God, I can't believe the Superman. <laughs> like that happens. And then like... The, the, the real sadness here to me, I think, because you mentioned earlier, Christopher Reeve, obviously, like, he came onto this, he wanted to do, like, a nuclear arms race thing. You can tell that, like, he does care, but that makes it a lot sadder, because I think there are points where he's, like, fully invested, like, when he does the big United Nations speech, that feels like he's totally invested in doing that, and he actually has, like, a lot of the gravitas that you liked about him in the earlier movies, but then there are very clear points, especially when Nuclear Man comes into this, where he just looks, like, defeated, He's just like, oh, mm-hmm. fuck, what mm-hmm. am I doing? <laughs> no, I completely agree. Career. Half of this yeah. movie, half of this movie, Chris Reeves was like, this is fucking great. You know, I'm actually getting, we're kind of maybe getting a message across. This is a story I wanted to tell. I love it. The other half, he's like, I got to fight this fucking tool bag. <laughs> Which, that's my other great ex love of this movie. Gene Hackman's making, you know, and I got this, whatever he calls it, I forget this proto sample of tissue, and we just put it in this box here and then cut some fabric. And well, how, you see, could, that's not going to be the fabric. And actually, the machine will make the fabric grow and it'll be actually covered and responsible. Like, I like it. Like, what? Wait a minute. So he gets shot into the sun and the. the Sun grows that suit around his body? Well, right, because it starts off as like a zygote and then a fetus starts developing in a weird womb in space and then yep. he turns into Nuclear Man complete with suit. <laughs> yeah, complete with suit. I wish that he would, uh, like, he would have came out of that and like half of him in cloth and be like, kill me! <laughs> 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 
it is funny you mention that because there was apparently a whole thing shot where they had an original prototype nuclear man. Like, there was a solid, like, I don't know, 10 to 15 minutes of this movie where there was a different nuclear man that showed up and looks completely different, and Superman fights him and easily defeats him. And then this is supposed to be the second nuclear man. <laughs> that was... This is Trial 2. <laughs> they completely cut out of the movie. Oh, good for them. Still doesn't work, because if he if he gets out of the sunlight at all, he fucking yep. bails and shuts down. Which is such a great power source. Because, like, obviously, that's the thing with Superman. is like, he gets his power from the sun. But it's not like you close the blinds and he's just like, Ugh, I'm out of it. Unlike Nuclear Man. Right, God forbid it's a cloudy day. Right. <laughs> it's gonna have a problem. Yeah. And, I mean, there's other stuff. Like, the recreations they try and do of the earlier Superman movies. Like, when you go to the Kent farm and it looks clearly just like, oh, this is a very bad set. Especially inside the interior when he finds, like, his initial rocket that is narrated for some reason now by his mother, Susanna York, from the original movie. Because, uh, shockingly, they couldn't get Brando back. <laughs> Big shock of Brando didn't want to do it. He probably would have, though. You know, honestly, uh, give me a... Kind of cigarettes and some Krispy Kreme donuts, and they're like, "No, we've already spent way too much money." <laughs> like, no Look, we just paid fucking Sylvester Stallone ten million dollars to do Cobra and Over the Top. We can't spare that for you. Yeah, no, fuck that. Okay, I'll do it for uh, one crawler. No, we don't have it in the budget. <laughs> Our budget was shrank. <laughs> <laughs> We let lost just, half our money before we started filming. Let me just lick your fingers after breakfast. No, goddammit. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty bad. Yeah, so not only do you get his mother, which whatever, fine, but then you get all these other random Kryptonians who, I, you know, oh, forever, 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 forever. <laughs> yes, yeah, so my favorite in the Salt Fortress. And by in that Fortress of Solitude set, which looks so much worse than like in the earlier movies, it was like big, grand crystal, like hideaway. And this, like, it's clearly like a matte painting. Yep, <laughs> mostly matte painting. Yeah, I mean, clearly. <laughs> and yeah, that one, the, the elders are just like, no, we can't have people invest all of their hope into one person Superman, but it'll never work. Just like, guys, he's been doing this for like, I don't know, a decade now. Right, and he's fucking Superman, Superman, bro. Right. I mean, you guys are dead. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> like, what do you got to do with anything? The, the thing is, I would say, at least with some of the like fun silliness that's there and some of the ambitious elements of it, I wouldn't say it's like the worst even of like Superman movies, because we mentioned Superman 3. I would also say I prefer this to say like a Batman v Superman. Which is like oppressive and like three hours long darkness bullshit to me. Oof. I mean, I don't agree nor disagree. I gotta sit with that one a little bit. <laughs> I prefer it to Superman Returns. I mean, I would probably put it around Superman Returns to me because that movie, like, I while just, it looks. I, I, there's several reasons why I don't like Superman Returns 2 in particular. I can't imagine like two specific creative people involved with that movie <laughs> that you wouldn't want to talk about that movie for. Both are male. Their last names start with S. <laughs> That's true. Good point. Those are the <laughs> biggest problems with that movie. But yeah, I think that movie just has the weird problem. Of, like, it looks a lot better and it's more professional production, but if, like, it has no life in it whatsoever and it feels almost like we're wasting an interesting opportunity. I agree. We're like getting a clean slate versus like here, this one is definitely bad and it feels like it's a very much an embarrassing whimper of a note for like this weird series of movies to end on. Uh, but at the same time, I at least have like a few moments where I perk up with like, oh wow, this is fucking dumb. Like, the three guys that 
that Luthor meets with all the time, two of which are William Hootkins, a.k.a. Porkins, um, and also yeah. that one guy from Batman, uh, the one detective who gets shot early on in Batman, um, and also a very young Jim Broadbent, like, with hair, which was weird. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that is weird. But but when they, they meet up with those guys, and Luthor's just like, oh, look, let me uh, show off the sun so I can introduce Nuclear Man, and Hootkins literally, like, shields, like, oh, the sun, it's burning my eyes! <laughs> Bullshit like that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Or when, like, Nuclear Man comes by and he demonstrates in front of those guys with, like, Luthor just like, oh, look, um, I, like, your money's good here, don't worry. He puts up, like, a hundred dollar bill and Nuclear Man burns it in. So fake-ass Luthor in, like, the foreground and the hand quickly goes off frame. <laughs> <laughs> so bad. Like, there, there are those glimmering moments of stupidity that I find this kind of, like, not, like, like I said, not consistently, like, fun bad, but at the same time, more entertaining to me than some of the worser Superman movies, in my opinion. <laughs> Now I kind of see why you're saying you put it at the level of Super Returns. I think I got to agree. Because there is promise here. And it's just... They really fumbled the ball. And I mean, obviously the budget being cut and sort of all that has a lot to do with it. And the need to have, you know, another super-powered villain and all that stuff. Like, I get that. With Superman Returns, it's just because they wanted to make a fucking carbon copy love letter to the Donner movie. It's a hundred million dollar fan film is what Superman Returns oh, is. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing is just that like with, especially with like the history of superhero movies, I think also factors into this where in this weird context we're like, oh, we're getting lower and lower budgets with every sequel versus now when we have a superhero franchise, which is like, no, we have to put as much money as possible into like, I don't know, the fucking like Justice League or like this weird, like sort of like either the Aquaman slash Batman movie and all this other stuff where we're trying so hard to have like this weird interconnectivity and trying to be this like big, massive, epic production i kind of prefer to have the charm of like it's a 90 minute really shitty (laughs) poorly produced movie that feels at least a bit more novel to me now as opposed to like what we would get at this point where like the bad special effects are just like big cgi gray balls Mm -hmm. uh but yeah i mean there's there's some other stuff like i would say like probably the low point of this movie to me overall is like the whole um sitcom style like oh superman and clark can have to go on a double date at the same time with lois and mariel hemingway is like probably like the complete low point of this movie where they had to do some like fucking farcical bullshit we're just like oh i gotta go down and pay the cab clark can't and then all of a sudden superman's up on the ledge and so i think that's like the absolute because that's the stuff where when it's trying to recreate sort of that fun comedic charm of those earlier movies it falls so flat with like that or fucking Margot Kidder's only, like, running bit of this movie is that she learned French for a trip to Paris that didn't happen. Yep, pretty great. And all the stuff with, like, the Daily Plants being bought up by a weird conglomerate guy who is uh, Meryl Hemingway's father. And it's just like, I want to run this like it's the tabloids! And all this other shit, just like, I don't, I don't really give a fuck about any of this. You absolutely don't give a fuck about any of it. It's ridiculous. It, it's just... Yeah, no, this is a terrible movie. Yeah, it's uh, but then then something inspiredly dumb will happen, like the fight on the moon, Adam. <laughs> yeah, pretty great. One of the worst choreographed fight scenes ever. It's so bad, and it's also in slow motion. So because it's just like, oh, we have to take the moon's gravity into effect here. It's like, no, you really didn't. You really fucking didn't. They're super people. They doesn't matter. On oh, the fingernails. Oh god. Okay. Yeah. 
No, it's... right, and the, the awkward inserts of the fingernails growing with like really bad, like plastic fingers. Oh, clearly plastic fingers. Yeah, it looks like the so. type of things that you can buy at like Halloween for kids that they could just stick on their fingers and it makes them have like witch fingers or they're longer. That's exactly what it looks like. Um, but I guess before we get to final thoughts, Adam, uh, this is like I mentioned, kind of one of the movies that helped end canon films. Do you feel that like this is, feels like an appropriate sort of like end point from where we were at with canon? Do you feel like this is kind of like what we were leading to this whole time is like a bloated budget mess like this or Masters of the Universe to really sink it by the end of the 80s a couple of years later? Yes, I do. I feel like, you know, obviously they started putting all their eggs in the licensed material sort of basket, the Supermans, the Masters of the Universe is the, what they originally wanted to do with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is what to put a pen on that. But they just sank so much money into name recognition that, you know, well, it's Superman 4, of course it's going to make us a ton of money. Or it's, it's Masters of the Universe, of course it's going to make us money. It's Spider-Man, of course it's going to make us money. And it just, it just killed them. That's when it you know, solely became just about the name and not the product. I think I would agree with that, if not for the fact that these were, like, only three of, like I said, the 30 movies that came out literally in just 87. Where you, like, I'll just list off a couple fucking names here, Adam, movies that also came out in the same year from canon. Alan Quartermain, The Lost City of Gold, Over the Top, The Barbarians, Street Smart, Beauty and the Beast, Rumpelstiltskin, American Ninja 2, The Confrontation, uh, Sleeping Beauty, King Lear, that's right, from fucking Zeffirelli. That was also this fucking year. Uh, Barfly, Death Wish for The Crackdown. <laughs> like, that was just a few of the movies that were, like, at this time where I think the more the problem is that not necessarily oh they're putting all their eggs into one basket with like the licensed property thing as opposed to they were putting way too much eggs in several baskets and they just all those baskets fell through and all the eggs cracked really badly i mean yeah <laughs> well first of all paying sly stallone 10 million dollars like i mean i got nothing against sly i guess but good lord yeah especially for over the top <laughs> of all things oh which is a movie I 100% want to cover on this show at some point. That's so dumb. That movie's so fucking dumb in the best way. It's I love so it. dumb. <laughs> For sure. And also, like, Cobra was around the same time. Yeah, it, it was became very clear that they were stretching themselves way too thin. And uh, thus, the whole company would collapse by the very end of the 80s with all that. Uh, but, Adam, yeah, let's, uh, you know, we got to do uh, some of our stuff for uh, our weekly segment. So let's do some quick final thoughts. Do you have anything else to say about Superman 4, The Quest for Peace? It's just a bad film. It, it's just... It's not good. It doesn't work and meant for many levels. Uh, it's boring. It's not good, bad. It's like you said, it's not like canon, bad, charming. Uh, none of that. It's just, it's ultimately almost depressing uh, watching it. Uh, it's just, nope, 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 nope. Yeah, it's a depressing note, not just for necessarily canon, where this feels the most like them trying to do a Hollywood big-budget movie, and it feels just more embarrassing as opposed to creatively bizarre in a way that's like really like sad to see for them, and also obviously Christopher Reeve, given this is the last Superman movie, and you know, a, not even a decade after this, his tragic accident happened, so it simply feels like it's kind of like the, an ending note, for sadly, for his career, really. He said as much, like he feels that after this, his career kind of like faded off. And it's a bummer, because we've talked plenty of times of his other non-Superman roles, where he's tremendous, and he was a great, underappreciated actor in 
this time. Um, but but yeah, this feels I would say it's still not the worst Superman movie or even worse like DC movie necessarily for me of those adaptations. Um, but it's near there. It's very close to there, <laughs> in a way. Uh, but there's just enough like interesting ideas about the nuclear arms race thing, or like spits and spurts of like fun, entertaining, bad stuff that make it at least like not the worst to me, but still uh, pretty, pretty not good, to say the least. But now, Adam, let's get to our weekly segment, the double redo. Double redo. Double redo. Double redo. So the double redo is a segment that Adam and I do every week in which uh, we bring up a good and a bad pick related to the topic we're doing. In this case, we have each have a good and a bad canon film recommendation. And Adam, you're going first with your choices. Alrighty. So uh, for the good, uh, I, I have a movie that I think is not only one of the best sequels of all time, but maybe the best of this sort of beloved yet messy franchise. Uh, I have the Toby Hooper Texas Chainsaw Massacre part two. It is a fucking cartoon of a movie. It is wacky. It is silly. It is darkly comedic and sometimes just outright slapstick comedic. Uh, it's just fucking nuts. Everybody in it is great. Caroline Williams are no out of control clearly under the influence Dennis Hopper. Uh, Bill Mosley just being as Bill Mosley as Bill Mosley can be and only Bill Mosley can be. Uh, you know, you got the grandpa, you got, you know, it, it just everything in this movie is fucking crazy and it works and it's funny and nutty and horribly gory at times and grisly violent and dirty, disgusting, wacky. It's just everything about it works. And some of the greatest sets. I mean, their underground lair that they have, it's just, it's fucking great. I mean, it's just, it creates this whole world for the Sawyers. It's just fucking wonderful. I love Text Chainsaw Massacre 2. It's another movie I have a poster of, signed by Bill Mosley, nonetheless. I absolutely will watch it anytime it's on. It's just, it's so fucking fun. It's, uh, you know, the movie that they signed Toby Hooper up for, because they're like, oh, he's going to make another Text Chainsaw movie. Oh, and that movie's, regardless of one of the scariest movies of all time, he can do it again for us. And he gave them this. And none of them expected it. Nobody expected it. It's just a wacky fucking comedy, basically. And I, I love it. Every piece of it to death. And for my bad, I have a movie that was originally made by Canon, but it was near the end, so it was sort of picked up by MGM and distributed by MGM. But it's a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie, Death Warrant. Uh, Death Warrant was one of the movies when I was a kid that was like, you know, this is like the hardcore action movie. Like, this is the one that, like, you shouldn't be watching, you know, like I, cause I, we were allowed to watch a bunch of the other ones, but this one was like one of the ones, maybe not because you know, with the prison and all the stuff that happens in it and you watch it now and it's just really dumb and tame and stupid. Like there's a couple of good moments to it, but for the most part, it's just really, really bad and sort of cliche, you know, cop undercover in prison movie. And it's just, there's a lot of implications with a lot of things that I don't really want to get into because it makes me feel dirty. Uh, it's just, it's pretty lousy. It's just a chance for Van Damme to have a shirt ripped off in prison fights, basically. It's 
it's not even chore- it's not even shot well. Like that's one of the biggest problems you could do with a martial arts action movie. If you can't see what the fuck is happening, if you can barely see the fighting and all that stuff, then what's the point? And this one is definitely guilty of that. Uh, yeah, I have not seen Death Warrant, um, though it's interesting. I will say that it was, uh, like you said, it was produced for canon and then uh, basically like came out right after it went under. So MGM released it theatrically with Pathé, which is uh, one of the British companies that canon bought. That's another weird part of their history, by the way, that they bought up like 40% of the... Um, British like studios and um, the like theatrical the actual movie theater chains as well over there. So that was part of their weird spending habits like by the mid eighties. So that kind of like was a result of that deal. But I have not seen that particular movie. Uh, though I have seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre two. We talked about it on a previous episode, and I mean I would say I do love it alongside the original Texas Chainsaw. If anything, I would say two just works fascinating as like a reaction to the original Texas. Chainsaw, where it came out 12 years later, there had been some attempts to make another Texas Chainsaw that never worked out. So then Cannon was like, hey, Toby Hooper, we're going to give you a lot of money to do that, as well as Life Force and Invaders from Mars, which are also both great. If you have not seen those people, those are both fascinating, bizarre, and weird. Um, But uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, it feels like so much more of a reaction where it's like after the whole slasher craze had happened and it was a reaction to the original Texas Chainsaw not being that bloody, it's almost as if Toby Hooper's like, okay, well, if I'm going to do another one, I don't want to, but if I do, um, how about I make it a silly comedy that kind of parodies the original movie and it's just filled with way more gore <laughs> than the original ever had. It's a fascinating movie. It's divisive. And I mean, I get it with some people who are just like, oh, it's like nails on a chalkboard to me, but firm, I agree with you firmly that I think it's much better than, you know, a lot of the other sequels that would come out. I think, like, all the other sequels in that franchise just try to recreate the original movie in their own sort of way, versus this one is not trying to do that at all, and I kind of would have wished that if there had been more sequels in this vein, I would probably prefer Texas Chainsaw as a franchise a lot more than I ultimately do. But, uh, I have my choices here for canon films, and, um, my good pick is actually what I would genuinely say no joke is a great pick. It might be my favorite canon film of all these because uh, I recently watched it as part of prep for this episode. It is called Runaway Train from 1985. Uh, basic premise is that it follows two prisoners who escape from um, a maximum security prison who are played by uh, Eric Roberts and John Voight um, and they escape from prison and get onto a train that as they're getting onto it, the person who is actually running it has a heart attack and dies but the train starts going on its own so it's a literal runaway train and it's all about these people trying to stop this train while at the same time knowing that like oh there are a couple people on here we don't know they're escaped prisoners yet because there's a third stowaway played by rebecca de mornay who works on the train who's also on there so it's a weird thing of people in the control booths trying to control everything while at the same time this train's literally running away and also john p ryan who's a great character actor we talked on the show previously plays the incredibly insane warden out to get voight and eric roberts back to prison and it's made by a guy named uh, Andre Kachovsky. I apologize if I mispronounced that, but he was a Russian filmmaker who would later make uh, Tango and Cash, one of our favorites, Adam, um, uh, later in the decade. And uh, But this movie, it doesn't have any of that big macho machismo like at its core necessarily, there's elements of that. Like the most canony moments in this movie are the big prison riots that happen and some of the stuff where it's like the various people in the control booth, which includes T.K. Carter, uh, who many would know from The Thing, amongst other things, and uh, Kenneth McMillan, who was uh, the 
original version of Baron Harkonnen. Um, and like that stuff has some of the canon kind of like fun kitschiness, but as much as I don't really especially like John Voigt as a fucking person right now, uh, he's so fucking great in this movie. And so is Eric Roberts. Like Eric Roberts and Voigt have become such jokes in recent years. It's weird going back to like this 80s period and watch these performances that got them Oscar nominations, like genuinely. Like they were nominated for Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor, and the movie also got a Best Editing nomination. I get it. It's a really thrilling adventure kind of movie that also has a lot of like pathos to it about like the prison industrial complex and it's a kick-ass action movie at the same time there's some amazing special effects work with like the rear matting and stuff for like the actual train running wild and like the model shots lots of like trains like getting fucking run over by this runner way train that looked fucking spectacular it's a genuinely great movie that was like genuinely like almost like emotionally verklempt by the end of it it's just an amazing movie that like if anyone wants to like decry canon you know it's just like oh they just made schlock they made also just these interesting movies like this kind of fits in with the weird projects they would also finance like street smart or the cassavetes movies they'd finance as well where it's like no they made a couple of genuinely great like non-schlocky entertainments that i would firmly recommend including runaway train which is phenomenal and then for my bad, um, we kind of referenced some of these like fairy tale adaptations they did in like the late '80s. Like you know, they did Snow White, Rumpelstiltskin, a couple of these like canon fairy tales. I believe they were marketed as to kind of like try and appeal to like more of a kid-centric audience. And uh, I have one of those here as my bad pick, which is Puss in Boots, which is an adaptation of the old fairy tale Puss in Boots, in which a young man, in this case, uh, Jason Connery, son of Sean. Um, is uh, bequeathed a cat from his father after he passes away, and he carries around this cat, and he's like, oh, I don't know, I wish I had some kind of, like, bigger life out there in the kingdom and whatnot, and this cat suddenly gets boots um, that are left over by the guy he puts on those boots, and he becomes a human, in this case, Christopher Walken, who shows just like, hello, I'm a cat, um, with my great Christopher Walken impression there, it's like he was in the room, um, but... It's just literally this version of the story that's like a musical and everything that is mostly just kind of like very dire. It was 88, so it's like a year after Superman 4 and the budget shows. It's very much like stripped down. The musical numbers are bad. Anyone, like most anyone who's on like in center stage when the cat isn't around are like, whatever, I don't care. These like This is like bad children's theater, but walk-in this feels like one of the earliest examples of sort of like the meme comedy performances of walk-in where like he is just so full of like that walk in joy whenever he's dancing or singing these terrible songs and he's making these weird bizarre face that feels like he's the guy who's at like the children's matinee performance who actually wants to entertain the kids and it's like fuck yeah dude you're having a lot of fun and i love watching you like i wouldn't recommend necessarily watching this whole movie it's like 100 minutes long and like i said whenever it's not focused on walking it's dire but man there's some fucking clips of some of these fucking songs and some of these bits where walking is just like oh no my master look he's down there someone help him and doing all these like very silly bits that are just like entertaining enough to watch as like a youtube compilation almost uh but yes overall puss in boots not a canon high point so uh i've never seen either of these uh i do want to see runaway train and i really like the soul asylum song that's based on um (laughs) (laughs) they they, they time travel 10 years to steal the premise of and they came back isn't that about like kids who went missing or some shit right yeah something like that (laughs) 
But I mean, and that's saying a lot considering you are very much not a fan of Voight, regardless of politics or not. You hate that dude just in general. I can't fucking stand John Voight, but I love me some Eric Roberts. Um, He's a talking cat. No, that's the other movie that I had. (laughs) (laughs) I gotta see it, man. I've heard great things, even on that documentary when they show clips of it. You're like, this looks pretty fucking good. So yeah, that's one I'll definitely check out. I I think I'm gonna avoid Puss in Boots. Uh, at all costs it sounds fucking terrible uh but yeah they did have canon fantasy in doing the research i think i realized like i i wa- looked at the rumpelstiltskin one they did with billy barty and i'm like i think i saw this as a child i think i've <laughs> seen I, that one right because i think that might have been my first exposure to the great little person actor billy barty who's yeah. always amazing for sure but yeah man i uh you know canon again in, in closing on canon in, in general it's such a fun f- sort of library of films to sort of go down and you'll discover some gems in there. You're going to see some of the worst movies you've ever seen, but there are some genuine real gems in there. And and that's more you could say about, you know, other, you know, I guess like trauma and full moon and all that. Like, yeah, there's some gems, but there's way more bad than good. And I think can is about a good 50, 50. Yeah. And even some of those like bad ones are still entertainingly like bad right. to a certain extent, I would say. Yeah. Right. I don't think this will be the last time we cover a canon film. Band. Can't do it. It cannot. Can oh, to ends nuts. You are just on point tonight. Oh, perfect. <laughs> Golden Globe is smiling down upon me with this. Uh, but let's go ahead and repeat our titles for everybody out there uh, in case they missed them. Adam? My good is Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, and my bad was Death Warrant. And my good was Runaway Train, and my bad was Puss in Boots, not from the Shrek franchise. Which, by the way, also the Puss in Boots from the Shrek franchise is pretty fucking terrible, too. So no, the, the Antonio Banderas is a fun job. No, no, no. His, his own movie. Oh, right. Yes, the, the original movie. <laughs> I kind of forgot. Like, they're, they're doing a sequel now, which is weird. Yeah, like, I think, so and I think it's straight to streaming as far as... No, it is theatrical. That's the weird thing. It's like... Oh, dear God, that's theaters. way worse. Why? Uh, I don't know, but though, for the record, I will say, um, the animation looks a lot better than I was expecting. Oh. It's like a weird stylized, like, Spider-Verse type thing. And I'm oh, like, great. It, sh- it looks shockingly good animation-wise, and then they just talk, and it's like, oh. It's, it's probably by the guys movie. who did, like, Bad Guys or something like that. Right, yeah, which was very good uh, from DreamWorks out there. But that's a discussion for a completely different time, guys. It's time we started getting to the end of this episode, but stay tuned, as we'll be uh, talking uh, about our picks for next week. Uh, we'll be deciding those at the end of the episode, so stay tuned for that. We want to thank some people first, like Chris Oliver for intro and outro music for the show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Christian Thor Lally for our artwork. Uh, follow him at Night of Water. That's night with a K underscore of underscore water uh, on various socials out there. And uh, thanks to our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash dedbpod, where for just $1 a month, you all get to uh, vote in polls for specific movies and episode topics that we cover and also you get to listen to bonus podcasts we release at least one every month and the big one we'll be putting out by the end of november is going to be an edition of television in which adam and i uh, recommend each other a tv show we have not seen before to watch at least the first season of so you'll be hearing adam discover my pick to him of the rehearsal and me discovering his pick to me of cobra kai i'm still very curious of what your thoughts on Cobra Kai are going to be. This is the first time that we've done this sort of television thing where I'm like, I don't know if Thomas is going to like this or not. Everything else we've done, I was pretty sure I had a hit. 
on my hands, but this one I do not know. Well, I mean, I'll just say that I've at least gotten about halfway through the first season, but you'll have to hear our thoughts and contribute that one dollar to find out then. And also, add and discovering the rehearsal, which I'm also very curious about. <laughs> because yeah, I, I guess it's more. It yet. I'm gonna watch right. it. Uh, I'm gonna binge I'm... it tomorrow. Right, which I'm very fascinated by. I have nothing else because I think you'll be fascinated by it either way. I just don't know if you'll like it either on like a television show level or even like on a moral level <laughs> based on oh, the weird directions that goes. I'll be very curious to hear about that. As anyone out there, if you are, just contribute that $1. You'll be able to hear that by the end of November. Uh, but uh, if you want to find us on uh, various different places, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or if it fucking exists... Twitter just now, like, the, the we were recording this within hours after the announcement that most of Elon Musk's Twitter staff has bailed, and the site might break within a week. So if it's still up, we're on there, too, at DEDBpod. And we're verified. That's what we used your uh, Patreon money for. Sure, of course. I mean, you know, by the time this episode comes up, it'll be destroyed, so you won't know if we were verified. Or right. No one will know. Yeah, yeah. Right. right. But, but of we course. Were. <laughs> in our hearts we were uh, but yeah at DEDBpod on all those socials and also uh, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com if you want to submit feedback to us uh, via email and you can also find me on if it's still around Twitter as well as definitely Letterboxd which still you know is much more stable <laughs> a social media platform uh, I'm at not the who's Tommy at those places and I also do some writing at marianitomas.wordpress.com and at film-cred.com and you can find me on Instagram at Atom or Adam. That's A T O M underscore O R underscore A D A N. And you can find me on Letterboxd at Schwanson. That's S C H W A N D T S O N. And to hear more of our audio antics, uh, follow and subscribe to us on places like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and anywhere else you get your podcasts out there. If you're listening on Talk Film Society, the great network we're a part of, I might listen to all the other great shows out there. Uh, but you can also dig into our archives on our Podbean main feed for like 200 episodes before we ever joined Talk Film Society. And if nothing else, if you know you can't support us on the Patreon, even that dollar can be tight for some people, totally get it. The totally free way to help us out is to rate, review, or simply share the show around because it gets us more visibility out there. Yeah, some of y'all still do that for us, and we appreciate it. We love you. The rest yes. of you, get off your fucking asses. Day one, homies. We appreciate yeah. you. Yeah, for sure. Get y'all yes. up in Suggs Mansion. <laughs> And now, Adam, it's time we end the show as we normally do with doing our picking for the next episode. So uh, every week, Adam and I each have either two good or two bad movies. We switch up on the quality for those. Um, and we assign each of them a number between 1 and 10. Um, and uh, basically the other person will say, like, you know what, I'm going to pick number 6, for example. And the other person will be like, okay, that's closest to number 5, which had this particular pick at that number, uh, but there is something here called the Godfather Rule, which uh, we were given vetoes back at our last anniversary in May to use uh, once a single veto that we had to use before the next anniversary come next May. Uh, so if we hear that choice at like number six or whatever, and we're like, you know what? I don't want to cover that movie. The person can say, actually, I'll take the cannoli. And thus that pick is gone. We have to go with whatever other choices on the opposite end of things. At least for those of us who have vetoes still. I used mine a couple weeks ago. I have no ability to use a veto. But Adam can do that for my two bad choices for the next episode. Though I'm not sure if you would <laughs> be able to. Because I'm not sure if you know what these two movies are. <laughs> Probably have zero idea. 
the topic that we're doing, which we should mention, shout out to our patrons over at patreon.com slash dedbpod, uh, picked this particular topic because uh, we're still in November. This will be the last episode of November where we revisit some uh, familiar topics throughout the month that we've done previously. And uh, this one that the patrons decided to have us revisit is anime films, you know, a topic that uh, we're not necessarily, you know, like Lucinda Dickey in Ninja 3 The Domination, we're not as versed in Japanese culture, necessarily. Yeah, I mean, at all. I know very little about anime. Yes, uh, for sure on that. But um, I have the two bad picks for this, you have the two good. So I'm very curious, Adam, for your two good picks, um, I'm going to pick number 10. Okay. At number nine, I have, uh, which might be my first major exposure to anime. If not, it's probably the first one that I realized I was watching something that, you know, wasn't straightforward, typical sort of Western animation style. Uh, I have the classic sci-fi masterpiece that is Akira. Oh, yeah, I've definitely seen Akira. Uh, Great movie. For sure. Definitely one of the more famous anime movies out there, definitely. But what was your other choice, Adam? At number two, I have one that I think I've seen. If not, I've definitely seen clips, and I've definitely seen homages to it in other mainstream movies. Uh, I have the other, considered a classic, uh, Perfect Blue. Oh, I fucking love Perfect Blue. Satoshi Kon, one of my favorite filmmakers, regardless of anime or not. Uh, I want to cover one of his movies at some point. And that one would have been a great one, but... Well, totally down for fucking bad. Man, well, sorry. Yes, sure. Well, <laughs> well, now Adam. Fucking veto. Well, we'll see <laughs> if you might use yours for my okay. two bad picks, Adam. But please pick a number between one and ten. Uh, I'll go the opposite. I'll go number two. Okay, at number three, I had a '90s one that I think I vaguely remember at least seeing when I was younger. That had a sort of infamous production in its own right. And uh, has had at least very mixed reception out there from a lot of people. I have uh, the American-Japanese co-production of Little Nemo in Slumberland from, I believe, 1992. Okay, I've heard of this. Uh, I don't know. I don't think I've seen it. But I've definitely heard that title before. Well, I mean, it's based on, like, the old, like, American comics that were, like, from yeah, the yeah, 1900s yeah, yeah. No, or whatever. I, I, yeah, 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 yeah. I, uh, I'm not going to take the veto. I'm very curious on it, so we'll go for it. All right. Well, uh, on the other end of things, over at number nine, I had uh, one of the various uh, Netflix anime ones, which uh, I I polled a bunch of my anime friends who were just like, hey, you do you have a bad anime movie to recommend? And unanimously, a lot of them said this one called Firework that came out a couple of years ago from the same people who made Your Name, which I have seen as a great anime movie. Uh, but this one I've heard just bad things about. I've never even heard of that. Big shocker. <laughs> I hadn't heard of Firework before, because shockingly, a Netflix one I haven't heard before that got released amongst like 500 other movies that one week. Weird. I can't imagine I hadn't heard of it before. Uh, but yeah, so Little Nemo and Slumberland and Akira. Very fascinating for our next episode. But until then, everybody, uh, you, know, you just gotta watch out for those possessed ninjas, especially if they're rotating around while you're trying to exercise them. Yeah, doing a bunch of wacky flips and shit. 